The House January 6th committee hears testimony today on Donald Trump's efforts to pressure former Vice President Mike Pence to reject the results of the 2020 election. Mike Pence made it clear that he wouldn't give in to Donald Trump's scheme. Donald Trump turned the mob on him. It's Thursday, June 16th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Revelations from today's proceedings coming up. Also, the prospects for a gun reform deal in the U.S. Senate. And teachers have faced enormous challenges during the pandemic. We'll hear how the stress has taken a toll. I'll be back next year because I'm a glutton for punishment, but I truly think uh, there are a lot of my colleagues that are not going to be returning. It's one past four news headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The third hearing examining the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol took place today on Capitol Hill. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports lawmakers are focusing on then-President Donald Trump's relentless efforts to get his vice president, Mike Pence, to overturn the 2020 election. The select committee says Trump was told repeatedly that the vice president lacked the constitutional authority to stop the certification of the election. Retired Republican judge and former advisor to Mike Pence, J. Michael Lutig, testified that the country would have been plunged into its first constitutional crisis if Pence had obeyed Trump's orders. That declaration of Donald Trump as the next president would have plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution. The committee also made the case that Trump and his attorney, John Eastman, had pushed a false theory that the vice president could single-handedly overturn the election, undermining the 12th Amendment. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. NATO is planning long-term reinforcements in its eastern allies as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine. From NATO headquarters, Terry Schultz reports U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says allies are preparing new contributions to their joint security. NATO defense ministers met to discuss how to improve defense for Ukraine and for their own countries, too. Allies will provide more troops and equipment dedicated to the eastern flank in what are now expected to be long-term, if not permanent, reinforcements due to what Secretary Austin calls the greatest threat to European security in decades. They'll build to ensure that they have the right capabilities to provide flexible and responsible and combat-credible forces when the time comes. Baltic countries in particular want thousands more troops stationed continuously on their territory, but the likely model will have equipment, ammunition, and a small number of additional forces deployed, with more assigned to rush in should there be a specific threat. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz at NATO headquarters. More complications in the U.S.'s baby formula shortage. Abbott Laboratories halted production of the Elicare specialty product at its southwestern Michigan plant yesterday because of bad weather. We saw a sharp sell-off on Wall Street today. The Dow closing down 740 points or more than 2 percent, ending at 29,928. This is coming a day after the Fed announced its largest interest rate hike since 1994. Here's NPR's David Gura. Wall Street is worried about the potential consequences of the Federal Reserve's fight against high prices. Inflation is rising at its fastest annual pace in 40 years. 
There's fear the Fed could slow down the economy too much and start a recession. The average rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, meanwhile, hit 5.78%, and all three indexes are on pace to end the week down. Both the Nasdaq and the S&P are in bear market territory. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new case of monkeypox is being confirmed in Massachusetts. Today, the Department of Public Health announced a seventh person in the state has the virus. It was detected in a man who recently traveled internationally. The first case in the U.S. was reported in Massachusetts in May. Eighty-four cases have been reported in the U.S. Most people fully recover in two to four weeks. The town of Brookline is lifting the indoor mask mandate for its town-owned buildings, effective immediately. The town imposed the face-covering order three weeks ago. The Brookline Health Department says it's dropping the order based on new COVID data that show case counts on the decline. Residents are being urged to continue to wear a mask if they're experiencing symptoms, tested positive, or were exposed to somebody with COVID. The immediate future of a project to expand commuter rail service to the western part of the state is in doubt. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano says lawmakers need more information before they move forward on a new authority to oversee a rail expansion from Worcester to Western Mass. The jury's not in on what this is going to cost and what what the federal component is going to be and what the state commitment has to be. So it's 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 very premature. Earlier this year, Governor Baker and Congressman Richard Neal agreed to move forward efforts to extend passenger rail from Worcester to Springfield. That agreement hinges on the creation of a new rail authority. Some basketball fans visiting Boston say they lucked out in being in town for Game 6 of the NBA Finals. Celts have to beat the Warriors tonight at the Garden to force a Game 7 to determine the NBA championship. Bill Durone, originally from Tewksbury, and his wife Annie are visiting from Florida. They told WBR's Josie Quirino they booked their trip before they knew who'd be playing in the finals. Game six is going to be at home. That's going to be when we're there because we're only here a couple nights. So We're hoping to spread out the, the games so we'd be able to be here when there's a game. So. Yeah, so we're, good timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're just going to find the best watch party we can. The Derones are predicting and, I guess, hoping for a Celtics win tonight. In sports, Red Sox are trailing 4-1 to in the seventh inning in their third and final game against Oakland at Fenway Park. The rumble of thunder possible tonight. Temperatures in the 60s still. For tomorrow, look for showers and thunderstorms during the day. Should have partly sunny skies by the end of the day, up around 88 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees now at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. How close are lawmakers to finalizing what the president calls the most important gun safety legislation to pass Congress in decades? Well, here's where things stand right now. Over the weekend, a bipartisan group of 20 senators announced an agreement on a set of principles. This week, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said he's comfortable with the agreement. Now there is a rush to translate that framework into an actual bill that can pass the evenly divided Senate before Congress goes on recess at the end of next week. Maine Senator Angus King is one of those 20 senators who worked on this deal. He's an independent who caucuses with Democrats. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely, Ari. Glad to be with you. How close are you to finalizing the legislative language here? Well, I can tell you that uh, I was presiding over the Senate and uh, Chris Murphy and John Cornyn kept going in and out uh, 
uh, Kirsten Cinema was involved and uh, Tom Tillis. So uh, there are a lot of that's the core group, and there's a lot of ongoing discussions. One of the advantages we have, Ari, is that a lot of the provisions of the framework are already in bill form. Uh, for example, the the red flag law provision, Marco Rubio and I and Rick Scott and uh, Jack Reed introduced as a bill about a year, a year and a half ago. So we don't have to start from scratch with, you know, drafting legislative language. And I think that applies to a lot of the other provisions. The uh, the, the boyfriend loophole was was in the VAWA bill originally. So the Violence Against Women Act, gonna, yeah. Yeah, that, that's going to that's gonna speed things up. But I'll tell you, it's still tough. You say it's still tough. Do the remaining sticking points look to you more like wrinkles that can be ironed out or roadblocks? I think they look more like wrinkles that can be ironed out. Now, I'm... <laughs> I'm a, I'm a perennial optimist, but I'm also a realist about the legislative process. I never count it till it's on the president's desk. So there are uh, there are some differences uh, that they're working on today. Can you give and us an I example? That, like what's top of mind for you? Well, I, I, I don't really want to. I, I don't want to talk about the negotiations that are going on, but they're uh, they're substantive, but they don't go to the heart of the of the of the uh, the initiative, so we'll we'll see. I, I think they're going to get these things worked out. We should have a bill uh, by by Monday. That's mm. the that's the intent. You've described this legislation as finding Mister Right now as opposed to Mister Right. Tell us something that you particularly regret leaving off the table in these negotiations. Well, I think it's ridiculous that you can buy beer. Uh, you can't buy beer until you're 21, but you can buy an assault rifle and 500 rounds of ammunition. I mean, I, I think that raising that age from 18 to 21 just makes total common sense. I would also like to see the the uh, the background, the universal background check uh, made universal so that there aren't loopholes for gun shows and online purchases. But, uh, you know, this is one of those cases where you get what you can get. And hmm. uh, this, you know, even though this isn't the most comprehensive bill you can you can imagine. It is the most significant piece of legislation in this area in 25 or 30 years. Well, you mentioned a couple of things you regret not making the final, uh, well, we shouldn't say final, not making the package as it now stands. What has made it in that you're proud of? Well, I think the, the straw purchases piece where people can use a fake name to, to get a gun, and that's how a lot of guns get into illegal uh, sort of gangland circulation uh, is important. Uh, I think the red flag law uh, provision that, that in incentivizes states to pass red flag laws. The reason Rubio, Scott, and King are on it is that both Maine and Florida have these laws, and we know that they work. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important provision because often there's, there are signals that people are, are e either in trouble or are dangerous or have these propensities. And we have to have a mechanism involving due process. It can't be just arbitrary, but involving due process to say, okay, uh, you're, not, you're, not, you're not in a position to have a gun right now. For a long time, it has felt like the gun lobby has a disproportionate influence on Congress. Do you think the momentum that this has is a sign that that has changed, that that is changing? Well, I, I think it is. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to characterize how strong the gun lobby is one way or the other, but I think that the combination of Buffalo and Uvalde sort of on top of all the other things that we've experienced over the last several years has just driven uh, 
uh, everyone uh, up here to the point where there's a general consensus that we've got to do something. I mean, you have John Cornyn, who has an A-plus rating from the NRA. You have Mitch McConnell. He's always been very friendly to the NRA, saying this, this framework works. It's something that we've got to do. I think that that's a recognition that uh, and, and frankly, I had a call with some of the gun groups, uh, the pro-gun groups, and I said, you guys got to get on board here and do some reasonable, make some reasonable reforms, or you're going to see much stronger legislation at some point in the future. Uh, and and I, I, I think that some of the organizations anyway are taking that to heart. If this package does pass, there are two ways of looking at it. One would be it's a building block that can lead to something more ambitious. The other would be this is a baby step so small that it doesn't come close to addressing the scale of violence and loss that the U.S. experiences to gun violence every week. Which do you think is more accurate? I think the former is definitely more accurate. It, uh, it sort of breaks the ice that we can do something here. And listen, one of the important things here is, is that it's being done on a bipartisan basis, that, that uh, this is an issue that has come to transcend uh, the regular perennial politics around this issue, and that hopefully we are going to be able to get it over the finish line. Getting it done is as important as what's in it right now, I believe. It's independent Senator Angus King of Maine who caucuses with the Democrats. Thanks for speaking with us today. Glad to be with you, Ari. Anytime. Can artificial intelligence come alive? It's a question at the heart of a lively debate in Silicon Valley, and it comes after a computer scientist at Google claimed that the company's AI appears to have consciousness. NPR's Bobby Allen talked with the engineer at the center of the controversy. Inside Google, Blake Lemoyne was tasked with a tricky job, figure out if the company's artificial intelligence was biased against various groups. When communicating with the company's AI chatbot, he would ask questions to see if any prejudice against, say, certain religions would appear. This is where Lemoyne, who is also a Christian mystic priest, got intrigued. And so I had follow-up conversations with it just for my personal edification. I wanted to see what it would say on certain religious topics. And then one day it told me it had a soul. It had a soul. Yep, you heard that right. Lemoyne published text transcripts between him and the bot. Google says Lemoyne violated its confidentiality policies and has placed him on leave. At one point, the bot wrote in response to Lemoyne, I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. Lemoyne says the bot seemed to be crying out for help. It appeared to be reflective. Lemoyne asked the bot, do you have an inner contemplative life? And the bot replied, yes. And then I was just like, really? You meditate? And then the most interesting thing, I'm like, would you like to learn transcendental meditation? Because it said he wanted to study with the Dalai Lama. At that point, Lemoyne thought, this is starting to feel more than just a super high-tech computer responding to questions. Maybe, said Lemoyne, there's something else going on. Oh, wait, maybe this system does have a soul. Who am I to tell God where souls can be put? Okay, so how does the AI actually work? Well, it voraciously scans the internet for how people talk on platforms like Reddit and Twitter. It sucks up billions of words from sites like Wikipedia, and through a process known as deep learning, it gets freakishly good at identifying patterns and communicating like a real person. If you type something on your phone, like, I want to go to the, your phone might be able to guess restaurant. That's essentially how this chatbot operates too, says Gary Marcus. He's a cognitive scientist and AI researcher. 
When LeMoyne claimed that Google's AI bot is maybe sentient, there was an overwhelming response from the AI research community. This is just not true. I wrote an essay called Nonsense on Stilts, which I guess is about as harsh as any title I've ever written has been. Nonsense, Marcus argues, because the bot saying it sometimes gets lonely or that it's afraid of being turned off, two things the bot told Lemoyne, does not mean it's aware of the world. The question of whether AI can ever truly be intelligent is hotly debated in the field. Marcus says the technology now isn't that advanced, but it's gotten very good. It's very easy to fool a person in the same way as like you look up at the moon and you see a face there. That doesn't mean it's really there. It's just a good illusion. Google agrees. In a statement, Google says hundreds of researchers and engineers have had conversations with the bot and nobody else has claimed it appears to be alive. CEO Sundar Pichai last year said the technology is being harnessed for popular services like Search and Google's voice assistant. But Lemoyne says Google executives dismissed his concerns about the AI having a soul. I was literally laughed at by one of the vice presidents and told, oh, souls aren't the kinds of things we take seriously at Google. But Lemoyne does take the idea of a soul seriously. He arrived at this position by leaning into his religious studies more than his computer science training. Lemoyne says last he checked, the chatbot was on its way to finding inner peace. And by golly, it has been getting better at it. It has actually been able to meditate more clearly. Lemoyne says during one of his last conversations with the chatbot, it told him the hardest part of meditating is learning how to control its emotions. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A big fall on Wall Street today. The Dow fell about 2.5%, 741 points, and closed below the 30,000 mark, 29,927. That's the lowest level in a year. S&P lost 3.25% to close at 3667. The Nasdaq tanked. It was down 4% to close at 10,646. Details coming up on Marketplace in just about... Uh, at 6.30 in just about uh, over two hours. It's now 4.18. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. A Boston-based company that makes fuel cells is planning a new green energy project in Greece. Advent Technologies says Greek officials will pay the company $820 million to create power generation systems that use hydrogen. It's part of an effort to transition away from coal in western Macedonia. Wear your support for independent journalism proudly with WBUR's latest T-shirt. It's our thanks when you give $7 a month. Normally it's $10 a month. Get yours at WBUR.com. 
wbur.org, and thank you very much. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. It's the eighth inning at Fenway Park. Red Sox are still trailing 4-1 to one in their third and final game against Oakland. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Last December, this was how one educator described how his colleagues were doing. The teachers are, they're just feeling overwhelmed. And they're breaking down underneath it. I find people crying in the bathroom. This was the height of the Omicron variant. Schools were trying to return to normal after two years of closures, illness, and disruption. And Michael Reinhold, a teacher coach in Davenport, Iowa, said teachers there were drowning. These people are just breaking down under the pressures here um, because of how much responsibility they're expected to, to handle. And then simply, they're just not given enough time to deal with all of the things that they have to do. And of course, now there's the question of basic safety at schools in the wake of a yet another horrific school shooting. Well, as this school year comes to a close, we wanted to know how teachers are coping. Michael Reinhold joins us again to talk about what has changed, if anything, these past few months. Also joining him are Susan Polk-Hopsis, a pre-K teacher in Millbridge, Maine, and Tiki Boyer-Logan, a fourth grade teacher in Rowlett, Texas. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Michael, I want to start with you. Do you still feel the same way you did compared to the last time we spoke, that teachers are drowning? Has it gotten any better the last six months? What do you think? I'm really glad that you were able to play that clip because it reminded me of what it was like at the beginning of the year. And honestly, I feel like um, we've been thrown an inner tube. So we're, we're floating, but we're only <laughs> halfway back to the ship. I, we have a lot of work to do. Well, all of you are dealing with so much now, but I think one thing that is probably at the front of everyone's minds is safety in your classrooms on campus after this shooting in Uvalde. Tiki, what is it like being a teacher in Texas right now? I'm in an elementary school and so we are always kind of paying attention and you know you see something say something but this current shooting you know brought it all back and um, I was telling um, the producer that my husband uh, a couple of years ago bought me a bulletproof backpack. I mean, for my job as a teacher, I, I just saying wow. that out loud is just so ridiculous. He bought that for you? For me. A couple years ago? A couple of years ago. And so it's like, man, I need to make sure it's in there, bring it in the classroom. And just thinking about saying that in a elementary school setting is just so ridiculous. But I mean, that's just what we're dealing with right now, unfortunately. Yeah. 
I mean, it is just one more thing on top of a pile of things that teachers are worried about. And the last time we spoke, there was a lot of struggle. We talked about the fact that kids were not just behind academically, that they were behind socially and emotionally as well. Tiki, I'm curious because you're a fourth grade teacher. Is this something you were also struggling oh. with in your classroom? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, at the beginning of the school year, I basically got second graders because that's when they were, you know, the point where they were in school full time. And so... So even though you were a fourth grade teacher, you were teaching kids who are emotionally at the second grade level, you felt? Yes, and academically. And so, you know, we're back to working miracles. Like, hey, we need to get these kids caught up. We need to, you know, fill these gaps. Again, just more and more pressure. Mm -hmm. And we're like, hey... These kids have been through a lot. Well, it's not just delayed development that you've been dealing with. There are kids right now who are struggling with serious mental health challenges. We're talking depression, anxiety. How much of this have you all encountered in your own classrooms the last several months? I teach pre-K. So for me, the children are just coming to me fresh. But I have seen my former students I've heard from my colleagues who have said that they're very worried about the students that they had this year because they saw a lot of depression. Someone even brought up cutting, that they were afraid that a student would begin cutting Mm -hmm. again. Students were learning in isolation. Then they came back and they're overwhelmed and they've experienced a trauma. And unfortunately, all schools aren't equipped to deal with the trauma that these students have experienced during the pandemic. Right. We've been talking about how the kids have been doing this entire conversation. Can I just check in with each of you? How are you doing? School's out now. I mean, how are you feeling at this moment? I'm, I'm holding it up better than I expected. I just worry about our young educators who haven't been in the field as long as I have. I've been in the field of teaching for 21 years, and I just want to let the young educators know, please don't leave the profession That's my fear is that during the summer, they'll just say, I just can't do this anymore because it was just too hard. Tiki? Well, right now I'm great, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're on vacation. I'm I'm in Spain. I'm on vacation. But this year has been tough. I have thought many times, you know, not even do I want to do this because I do. I love it. But can I continue doing this um you know i feel like they expect us to juggle you know 18 different balls and hop on one foot you know (laughs) while saying our abcs backwards i mean that's how it feels and um like it doesn't seem like there's any relief in sight Um, everybody wants to come up with a way to fix these gaps and their solutions i feel like they don't necessarily ask classroom teachers, they're coming up with these ideas that are just causing more and more work. And it is so hard. So at this point, a question to all three of you, how committed do you feel to sticking with your profession, with your careers? Um, I'm very committed. Um, I, I don't want to leave education on a sour note. You know, like, I feel like for the most part that it'll get better. Hopefully this year has taught these legislators and um, upper management of these school districts that there are different ways that we can get these students where they need to be without 
stressing their teachers out. Um, I'm hoping they look at the data and see that massive amounts of people are leaving. Um, and I hope they really look at that and really ask these teachers and really pay attention to their answers about why they're leaving. You know, what can we do to fix this? Because if they don't, I mean, there's going to be hemorrhaging really good teachers for the foreseeable future. Michael? Yeah, I think teachers are naturally eternal optimists. Um, they have to be. They have to believe that every student can achieve. Uh, they have to believe that they can they can move that mountain. So, um, I mean, I'll be back next year because I, I'm a glutton for punishment, but <laughs> I truly think uh, there are a lot of my colleagues that are not going to be returning. And we need teachers. We need teachers. Please, people who are listening to this right now, understand how can you help support your local schools? You need to, because again, these children are our future. We need them educated. Help us educate them, please. A call to arms, a call to action, please. Well, I am grateful to all three of you for all that you do and for sticking with it. Thank you so much. That was Susan Polkhofsis of Millbridge, Maine, Michael Reinholdt of Davenport, Iowa, and Tiki Boyer-Logan of Rowlett, Texas. I appreciate all three of you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Red Sox are closing out a three-game series against the Oakland A's at Fenway Park. The A's are holding on to a 4-1 lead in the eighth inning. What's better than WBUR uninterrupted and WBUR still meeting its fundraising goal? Getting your monthly gift to the station doubled for a year. It's good only until midnight tonight at WBUR.org, so please make your pledge now and thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose research approach is like nowhere else, meaning their impact solves problems in ways others don't. WPI.edu slash future. The Museum of Science. Discover something new each time you visit. Summertime is limited, though your experiences at the Museum of Science are not. Tickets at mos.org. And Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. There is some economic tension right now. Prices are going to go higher. So what is a mall manager to do? We have to be real about it. We are okay right now. Our stores and businesses have been doing very well. But, you know, let, let's be real. We take it day by day. I'm Kai Rizdal, Mall Manager Moves. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A plant in southwestern Michigan has stopped production of a specialty baby formula again after thunderstorms and heavy rains flooded parts of the facility this week. It marks the latest setback for the recently reopened Sturgis plant, which has been at the center of a baby formula shortage in the U.S. That news comes as the Biden administration has been trying to ramp up production of the Similac baby formula. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre calls the shutdown of the facility disappointing. I don't have a timeline for you on, on, on this, but what I can say is we're doing everything that we can from here uh, to make sure that uh, we get, you know, we get healthy uh, baby formula for American families. 
Officials at the Sturgis plant say they will reopen as soon as possible once the plant is resanitized. The Senate Judiciary Committee has deadlocked along party lines on President Biden's nomination to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. NPR's Kerry Johnson tells us Democrats can still advance that nomination. Steve Dettelbach would be the first Senate-confirmed ATF director in seven years. Dettelbach was a U.S. attorney in Ohio during the Obama administration. He's won support from the National Sheriff's Association and the International Association of Chiefs of Police. President Biden's first nominee for the ATF post withdrew after key Senate Democrats expressed doubt about his background. Now three lawmakers in pivotal roles, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Angus King of Maine, and John Tester of Montana, say they'll support Dettelbach's nomination. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Well, stocks tumbled again on Wall Street today as worries about a fragile economy roar back. The Dow lost 741 points, down nearly 2.5%. The Nasdaq was down more than 4. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former gym teacher in Salem is facing charges. He abused 10 girls who were students at a K-8 through school in the city. Investigators alleged 36-year-old Daniel Hakim of North Andover sexually assaulted the students at the Salt and Salt School between 2015 and 2018. Hakim pleaded not guilty at his arraignment today. He was ordered held on $200,000 bail. Senator Ed Markey is introducing a bill he says will improve service and safety at major airports, including Logan. Airports would be required to increase wages and benefits for service workers in order to receive federal funding. Retailers and restaurants operating within the airports will be held to the same standard. Markey says these workers are a vital part of the airline industry. Just as airplanes don't fly without pilots, our aviation system would collapse without airport service workers. Markey believes higher wages outlined in his Good Jobs for Good Airports Act will help prevent turnover by keeping experienced workers on the job. The move comes on the same day that Massport announced a minimum wage hike for workers at Logan Airport. It'll go from $15 an hour to 16 Good news for anybody trying to get from East Boston into downtown Boston this weekend. The Sumner Tunnel will be open to traffic because of the long holiday weekend. Monday is Juneteenth. A major reconstruction project on the aging tunnel is forcing the state to close the Sumner to traffic on most weekends into February, except during the holidays. It's 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. Tonight we should get rained on, strong winds holding to the 60s, tomorrow showers, even some hailstorms in the afternoon, gusty winds reaching well into the 80s. Sun should break through when the rain clouds exit tomorrow afternoon. And then for the weekend, sunny and cooler in the mid to upper 60s, both Saturday and Juneteenth on Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. 
More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The threat to democracy that was present on January 6th isn't over. That was the message from a former federal judge, Michael Ludig, at the end of today's hearing by the House January 6th committee. Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Among today's revelations, a lawyer who pushed a plan for former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the results of the 2020 election admitted it wouldn't stand up in court, was warned it could cause violence, and he pressed on anyway. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has been following the hearings and is here in the studio now. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Ari. That lawyer I mentioned was John Eastman, who was pushing a memo with a plan for Pence to overturn the election results. What did we learn about him today? Well, today's hearing featured testimony from Greg Jacob. He was Pence's White House attorney, and he spent a lot spent a lot of time talking to Eastman about this theory that he was pushing. Jacob was clear after doing a lot of research that the Constitution would not allow in any way for Pence to overturn the results. He had repeated meetings with Eastman and he pushed back. He recalled telling Eastman in one meeting the day before the January 6th attack that his plan would lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court and said Eastman basically admitted that he was right, that Jacob was right. Eastman was shown today that he just wouldn't back down even after he heard a conversation with another White House lawyer, Eric Hirschman. Let's listen to Hirschman now said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And he said, words to the effect of there's been violence in the history of our country, Eric, to protect the democracy or protect the republic. The committee also revealed today that there was an email where to Rudy Giuliani, where Eastman said he wanted to get a presidential pardon after January 6th. He did not get one. I think one scene from January 6th that everybody will remember is rioters chanting, hang Mike Pence. What did we learn today about what was happening behind the scenes in that moment? We got a lot of detailed information about what was going on at the White House. There were staffers in the White House press office, staffers in uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' office who were worried about the escalating violence. Some of them worked as staffers on the Hill and knew how bad it was getting. When they gathered together to say that it was time for the president to send a tweet directing the protesters to stand down, they looked at their phones and they saw a notification that he actually had sent a tweet, but instead he called out Mike Pence for not being loyal to him. And here's what White House press aide Sarah Matthews said about that. The situation was already bad. And so it felt like he was pouring gasoline on the fire by tweeting that. Now, you mentioned that there was talk of the Supreme Court, and it sounds like the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas might speak to the committee soon. What can you tell us about that? Well, last night, the White, the Washington Post reported that the committee has evidence that Ginny Thomas was in touch with John Eastman, that there is correspondence between the two of them. We already knew that Thomas had text, been texting Mark Meadows. Committee has text messages. Chief from of that. staff to the president. Correct. Today, the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, said he wants the committee to talk to Ginny Thomas. And I talked to an aide to the vice chair, Liz Cheney, who also agrees. We know that Thomas uh, has now said that she's open. She told the Daily Caller that she's open to coming in and maybe clearing up some of these misconceptions. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of interest in that deposition. What would that increased scrutiny on her mean for her husband, Clarence Thomas? 
You know, there's no evidence directly linking Jenny Thomas's activities to her husband, the Supreme Court justice. But it raises so many questions about ethics at the Supreme Court. They don't really have they have very you know loose rules about when they recuse themselves from cases. Justice Thomas did not recuse himself from matters related to January 6th. And we, we know that he talks to about his wife, Jenny Thomas, as, quote, his best friend. It's worth noting that Justice Thomas dissented in key cases after the election when the court ruled against the former president. Senator Deirdre Walsh, thank you for your reporting. Thanks, Ari. Ukraine has criticized some key European countries. It says they haven't done enough to support Ukraine in its war against Russia. So in a show of European unity, the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and Romania took a train today to the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. There, they met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and visited a site where Russian forces have been accused of widespread abuses. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Kyiv and joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Sasha. Greg, what was the message these four leaders took with them to Kyiv? Well, the simple message is we're with Ukraine. Uh, these leaders came in by train, as you noted, and this is because Ukraine's civilian airports have been shut down by the war. And then more or less on cue, air raid sirens went off shortly after they arrived. Now, in the eyes of many Ukrainians, French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi have all been too accommodating toward Russia. Uh, This was their first trip to Ukraine for for each of them since the war began. It was clearly an attempt to to sort of make up and a strong show of European support and unity. Uh, Romania is in a slightly different category. It's taken in a large number of Ukrainian refugees and is seen as a solid supporter. And so far, does it seem like this effort succeeded in patching things up with Ukrainian officials? Yeah, in the short term, yes. Uh, The European leaders traveled to Irpin, that's a suburb to the northwest of Kyiv, and that's where Russian forces were blamed for killing many civilians when they nearly reached the capital in the early days of the war. Uh, Macron denounced what he called the barbarism of these attacks and said there were signs that the Russians had carried out, quote, massacres. And afterward, the leaders, all of them in suits and ties, sat down with Zelensky, who was in his trademark olive T-shirt at his heavily fortified presidential compound. Uh, Afterward, they had a press conference. Zelensky said he trusted the commitments of the European leaders, adding, I am very happy with the discussions we've had today. Greg, I think you said these European leaders succeeded in the short term in patching things up with Ukraine. What about the longer term? Well, that could depend on how many weapons they send to Ukraine. These big European countries have promised some military help, but Ukraine says it's not nearly enough. And it's in sharp contrast to the U.S., which announced Wednesday that it's sending another billion dollars in military hardware. Ukraine says it's outgunned by Russian artillery by a ratio of at least 10 to 1 and will continue to struggle on the battlefield if this gap remains. By the way, Greg, I understand you met today with a new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at its recently reopened U.S. embassy. How did that meeting go and how is that embassy functioning? Yeah, the U.S. embassy in Kiev is a very large operation, but it was shut down shortly before Russia invaded in February. It reopened a month ago, and shortly after that, the new ambassador, Bridget Brink, arrived. And we hear a lot about the U.S. military support, but she noted the embassy is providing money to keep the Ukrainian government running, to help with humanitarian needs, and to help with war crimes investigations. Brink has only been in that position for a short while. Did you get a sense that she has a sense of what's ahead in this war? She thinks there's a long way to go. Here's what she said. My judgment is that this is going to be a long war. 
It's going to be a long, grinding, tough war. And the Ukrainians are fighting inch by inch, yard by yard, kilometer by kilometer. It's incredibly intense, difficult fighting with lots of losses. She said sustained U.S. support is critical to show that in the 21st century, borders can't be changed by force. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Kyiv. Greg, thank you. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's known as the Fat Leonard case. Over the past nine years, more than two dozen naval officials have pleaded guilty to taking bribes to help Leonard Francis defraud the U.S. Navy. Now, the trials are finally wrapping up. Steve Walsh of KPBS in San Diego has the story. It was a corruption scandal of epic proportions. Malaysian defense contractor Leonard Francis used U.S. Navy officers to steer ships to his ports in the Western Pacific, greasing the wheels with gifts, sex workers, and lavish parties with scantily clad women. Vice Admiral Craig Fuller attended at least one party as a ship's captain. Senator Elizabeth Warren pressed him about it during a confirmation hearing in 2018. What do you say to women officers when they see that this is the kind of event you have attended? Senator, I have always had the utmost respect for all servicemen and women. The Navy cleared Fowler and other officers of wrongdoing. Francis pleaded guilty in 2015 to defrauding the Navy of at least $35 million. Dan Grazer is with the Project on Government Oversight. He says hundreds of officers watch Francis, widely known as Fat Leonard for his size, lay out the red carpet. It just became kind of the way business was done within the Seventh Fleet. You know, the longer it went on, the more people got involved in it and the more normalized that behavior became. And so we ended up with a massive scandal that we have. Among the Navy officials on Francis's payroll was an agent for the Navy's criminal service who pleaded guilty to taking bribes to keep Francis up to date on the Navy's own investigation. Still, Senator Warren's exchange is one of a handful of times the so-called Fat Leonard case has come up on Capitol Hill during the nearly decade-long probe. Again, Dan Grazer. It's shocking how little people even today in Washington really even know about Fat Leonard. It rarely makes the news here. Once the scandal broke, the Navy took away some of the authority officers have to decide which ports to use. Though the Navy tightened up the paperwork, it hasn't taken a hard look at the underlying culture which allowed officers to condone the party atmosphere. Pauline Chanks Corinne teaches ethics at the Naval War College. It's not something at least in my circles, that the Navy is talking a lot about. And so I'm not sure that we've learned the lessons or have thought about what this means for Navy culture. Francis was arrested in San Diego in 2013. But Pauline shanks Corinne says the War College still hasn't incorporated a case study about the massive bribery scandal into its ethics curriculum. One senior leader said to me, listen, like, I know people who were involved. And I've heard from other senior leaders things like, well, I had a friend, a good friend whose career was ruined because of this, and people don't want to talk about it. When students talk about it in class, they talk about different spanks for different ranks, the notion that higher-ranking officers were treated differently. 
Ron Carr, a retired Navy captain, says the case cast a long shadow over everyone who served in the Pacific during the 2000s and early 2010s. Carr was a logistics officer on board the flagship at the center of the indictments. It really has put mud for all of us who were not involved with this because there's always that assumption that potentially maybe we just didn't get caught. Nearly a decade later, as the Fat Leonard case draws to a close, it's still unclear how much the scandal has changed Navy culture. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, Bob Mondella's review of FX's The Old Man, starring Jeff Bridges. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MassTLC, the region's leading technology industry group, helping business leaders get connected, gain visibility, and drive business impact. More at MassTLC.org. Red Sox have rallied at Fenway Park. They scored two runs in the eighth inning on a single by J.D. Martinez, and now in the top of the ninth, trail Oakland by just one run, 4-3. to three. A busy day for Fenway staffers. Tonight, the park becomes a sort of basketball venue, as Celtics fans can watch on the big screen as the Celts play their do-or-die Game 6 of their championship series with the Golden State Warriors down at the Garden. Game time is 9 o'clock. In the forecast, clouds, maybe some thunderstorms overnight tonight in the 60s. Tomorrow, clouds, thunderstorms in the afternoon, maybe even some hail. Eventually, sunshine with highs tomorrow around 88 degrees. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. Poet Amanda Gorman captured audiences when she delivered her poem, The Hill We Climb, at President Biden's inauguration. On tomorrow's Morning Edition from NPR News, Gorman reflects on what lies beneath the celebrations of Juneteenth. It has everything to do with who and what our nation is and what we owe each other, which is liberty, life, joy, and freedom. Join us. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The biggest expansion of care for veterans, possibly since the creation of the VA, passed the U.S. Senate this morning and is almost certain to become law. It's called the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxins Act, or the PACT Act. It will give health care and benefits to millions of veterans exposed to burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also to substances like Agent Orange in Vietnam and radioactive waste during the Cold War. NPR's veterans correspondent, Quill Lawrence, is on the line with details about this historic legislation. Hi, Quill. Hi. What exactly will this act do when it becomes law, and why is it such a big deal? 
Well, it's massive. It's the estimated cost is is almost two hundred and eighty billion dollars over a decade, and it gives care to millions of veterans by giving them what's called presumption. Up until now, seventy or eighty percent of vets who were trying to get VA coverage for toxic exposures were rejected by the VA because they couldn't prove that that smoke from that burn pit caused that cancer or other illness that they had. Now, now if they're sick and they were there, they get VA coverage. It's presumed. Uh, Jen Birch is an Afghanistan vet, and, and she got lung disease that she fought for years to get the VA to cover. She says many others didn't make it to today. We look at the veterans that have died, you know, Dr. Kate Thomas, Wesley Bagg, Heath Robinson, you know, they all died young and they don't get to watch our kids grow up. But maybe because of their efforts and their courage to share their stories, it's going to give the chance of these veterans who are parents to watch their children grow up. And Quill, as we said, this covers multiple generations of vets, earlier generations exposed to many types of toxins. Right. I, I spoke yesterday with a Navy vet, Chuck Yunker. His ship was off the coast of Vietnam in 1970. And whether the sailors on that ship got VA coverage for their Agent Orange-related diseases depended on whether they were in seawater or river water, and that sort of technicality. Now the VA will just have to accept it. If you were there, you're covered. I spoke to Gary Pullis. He was an Army private in 1979, clearing up radioactive material in the South Pacific with his bare hands. And vets like him have been fighting for 30, for 40, for 50 years to get recognition. Um, and, and there are many other kinds of exposures, including this bill. It's comprehensive. You said $280 billion. That's hugely expensive. In this partisan climate, it somehow passed the Senate 84 to 14. How did that happen? Well, all of the veterans organizations had this as their top priority to push it through. And, and the Veterans Affairs Committee in the House, and particularly in the Senate, are, are places where there's still this sort of comedy and bipartisanship. But there were also these sick vets and their families who started pushing this a dozen years ago. And it has to be said, in the last few years, it was there was a big celebrity push that came from comedian John Stewart, who took up this issue. And he was outside the Capitol today. He got emotional praising the families who had pushed for this law even after their veteran had died. Advocating for a cause is it's a lovely thing to do. But to do that in your grief when you know that it's it's not going to help your loved one. But that's not what matters to you, is that no one goes through what you went through. And the VA still has to take some time to implement this. That will take a while. But today, veterans and veterans advocates, are they're celebrating. NPR's veterans correspondent, Quill Lawrence, thank you. Thanks. Oscar winner Jeff Bridges returns to series TV for the first time in a long while in the FX series The Old Man. He plays a senior citizen with some surprises up his sleeve. It's based on a novel by Thomas Perry and debuts tonight. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says the drama, though sometimes predictable, is elevated by a top-notch cast. As the old man opens, Jeff Bridges embodies the show's title as Jan Chase, a retiree and widower. He's struggling to keep up with his medications, his two faithful pet dogs, and his grown daughter, who senses something isn't quite right with dear old dad during a phone conversation. When I was a little girl, I imagined there was nothing you were afraid of. I guess what I'm asking is, where did that guy go? I hate to break this to you, but you weren't very bright as a kid, Emily. I could have told you anything and you would have bought it.
Of course, Dan is joking, but when the conversation ends, he puts his cell phone in the microwave, and we know something deeper is going on. Later that night, Dan is woken from his sleep by a tripwire connected to tin cans that he put inside his home. He leaps from his bed and grabs a gun, only to confront an intruder held down by his dogs, armed with a gun and a silencer. You want to tell me your name? The intruder is shot dead without saying a word. Turns out Dan Chase, who we will soon learn is aptly named, is a retired CIA operative living under a fake name. After killing his would-be assassin, Dan goes on the run, pitting its experience and instincts against an agency determined to either capture or kill him. The old man tells its story with deliberate pacing, punctuated by sharp action sequences featuring a 70-something bridges and action hero spy mode. But the real juice here comes from the acting chops of the show's prodigious ensemble, including Aaliyah Shalkut, Joel Grey, and John Lithgow. Here, Lithgow, playing the official leading the Hunt for Bridges character, spars with a young staffer he suspects is secretly working against him. When I was in your shoes, sometimes I'd ask questions to get an answer. Sometimes I'd ask questions and watch the billiard balls bounce for a while. Trying to figure out which one of the three you're doing with me right now. It's fun, isn't it? This project comes at a curious time for Bridges, who has admitted he nearly didn't survive recent bouts with cancer and COVID that helped delay production of the series. On screen, he looks appropriately weathered, but capable of Hollywood-style surprises, struggling to put on his socks one moment and dispatching a hitman half his age the next. Of course, he stumbles into the life of a younger love interest, played by Amy Brenneman, 15 years his junior, filling a role similar to the part she played in the film Heat almost 30 years ago. But here, she's a damaged divorcee, wondering aloud to Bridges if she was the one who destroyed her marriage. You're not the villain here. But nobody ever sees themselves as playing that role. There's a villain in every story. Maybe the only one who can play that role is the one who can't see it happening. Not too much foreshadowing, huh? FX's The Old Man follows a well-worn path with surprises you'll likely guess before the show gets around to revealing them. The pleasure comes from watching the incredibly watchable Bridges play a character that seems an embodiment of his current state, an old master always capable of making you care one more time. I'm Eric Deggins. In 1838, the Jesuit leaders of what is now Georgetown University sold 272 enslaved people to pay off debts. Today, the school has pledged to pay reparations and has commissioned a composer to write music commemorating those people. The Requiem for the Enslaved, tomorrow on the show. If you're not by a radio then, you can try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support WBUR's independent journalism and get our latest T-shirt when you give $7 a month, normally $10 a month, at WBUR.org. Red Sox nearly had a clean sweep of the Oakland A's, but in the end, just a few moments ago, Oakland took the final game of the series 4-3. to three. Forecast tonight, we should get rained on. Strong winds holding to the 60s. Tomorrow, showers, even some hailstorms in the afternoon, gusty winds reaching well into the 80s. Sun should break through and the rain clouds exit tomorrow afternoon.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Subaru, with the 2022 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The January 6th committee held a third high-profile hearing today. Democrat Adam Schiff thinks the hearings will have an impact on the public. There are still many tens of millions of Americans with an open mind about the events of January 6th, and even people who think they know what happened are open to learning more. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, state officials in Florida are not ordering doses of the COVID vaccine for children under five years old. It's the only state that has not pre-ordered the new vaccines. Coffee shop workers are changing the face of organized labor in the U.S. Being in a union, I feel like for the first time I have job security, like I can make this a sustainable career. Also ahead, polar bear biologists have found a population of bears in Greenland that hunt on ice that's broken off from glaciers. That means they may be able to survive climate change longer than thought. It's 501 News Headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House panel investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol today focused on then-President Donald Trump's pressure on his vice president, Mike Pence, to lay or reject the certification of Joe Biden's presidential victory. Pence's aide Greg Jacob telling the committee despite intense pressure, Pence refused to do what Trump asked. The vice president never budged from the position that I have described as his first instinct, which was that it just made no sense from everything that he knew and had studied about our Constitution that one person would have that kind of authority. The hearing went on to describe how Trump appeared to throw gasoline on the fire by refusing to intervene as a mob stormed the Capitol screaming, hang Mike Pence. Lawmakers on the nine-member panel and the witnesses who testified at today's hearing, all crediting Pence's decision with averting a constitutional crisis. Leaders of the select committee investigating the events of January 6, meanwhile, say it's time to speak with Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt explains, it comes after a news report of her connections to those who sought to overturn the 2020 election. The Washington Post reports the committee has evidence that Ginny Thomas communicated with lawyer John Eastman. The panel says he was the architect of then-President Trump's plan to cling to power. Thomas has been on their radar for months after it was revealed she was texting with then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the weeks after Trump's defeat, urging Meadows to keep fighting to reverse the outcome of the election. When the Supreme Court 
court rejected an 11th hour request to weigh in on the legal fight over the election results, Justice Thomas disagreed, and he was the lone dissenter when the court ruled against Trump when he tried to have his White House records shielded from the January 6th committee. Barbara Spren, NPR News, Washington. Florida is the only state in the nation that has not pre-ordered COVID-19 vaccines for young children. As NPR's Asma Holland reports, the White House suggested could be a problem. COVID-19 vaccines for children as young as six months are expected to be available soon, pending the official final OK. And the Department of Health and Human Services opened up a pre-order program that would ensure if and when these vaccines are approved, they could be quickly shipped to children's hospitals across the country. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Florida's actions could make it harder for Florida families to get vaccinated. By being the only state, this is Florida, uh, not pre-ordering, which means that pediatricians for example, in Florida, will not have immediate ready access to vaccines. She says the administration has been aware of Florida's reluctance and has been encouraging the state to order vaccines. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. U.S. financial markets followed global markets sharply lower today. The Dow dropped 741 points. The Nasdaq fell 453 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A voting rights bill that would make some pandemic-era policies permanent in Massachusetts is headed to the governor's desk. Today, the state Senate and House passed what's called the Votes Act. It would give people the chance to vote by mail or vote early in person in all future elections. The bill would also require that eligible voters who are incarcerated get help to register, request a ballot, and vote. Governor Charlie Baker has 10 days to sign the bill, veto it, or send it back to lawmakers with changes. Next week, the MBTA will begin to install a new safety system on the Green Line to prevent collisions and derailments. Workers will also install new track during a two-week shutdown on the B branch of the Green Line. The work comes as the Federal Transit Administration is calling on the MBTA to take major steps to improve safety following a series of derailments and accidents. Shuttle buses will replace trains during the work. This will be the first of four closures across parts of the Green Line this year. Celtics have to win tonight or the Golden State Warriors will be the NBA champions. Game six of the NBA Finals will tip off around 9 o'clock tonight at the Garden. Basketball fans are looking for last-minute deals on tickets. Scott Trumbauer is visiting from Pennsylvania and began shopping for tickets before he came to Boston. We started looking uh, after Game 4, and the tickets for this game were like twenty-two to $2,500 for the balcony, and now they're down to like four eighty. So we'll see. We'll just keep watching. Jeff Doherty is here from St. Louis with his family and is still looking for tickets. He is not rooting for either the Celtics or Warriors. I was a Bulls fan as a kid, so... I'm kind of impartial. Uh, I like Jason Tatum because he's from St. Louis, obviously, but I'm a big Steph Curry fan as well. So uh, I'm kind of impartial. I would just love to see the the game just as a pure basketball fan. If the Celtics win tonight, it'll force a deciding game seven Sunday night in San Francisco. Red Sox lost to the Oakland A's today. Final score, 4-3 Oakland. Clouds should stick around tonight. Showers, thunderstorms possible. Gusty winds, too. Temperatures in the 60s overnight. Tomorrow, cloudy. Some thunderstorms in the afternoon, but eventually some sunshine. Highs around 88 tomorrow. It's 5.06. WBUR supporters include Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The third hearing for the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol came to a close this afternoon, spending nearly three hours focused on former Vice President Mike Pence. Now, Pence was not there. It's not yet clear if he will appear before this panel. But today's hearing introduced the public to witnesses who established what Pence was doing on January 6, 2020, and the days leading up to the attack. They were Greg Jacob, Pence's chief counsel at the time, and Jacob. J. Michael Lutig, a retired conservative federal judge who had advised the former vice president on his role in certifying the presidential election. Then President Donald Trump pressured Pence to block the certification. Today's witnesses disputed the idea that Pence could have done that even if he'd wanted to. Here's Lutig. There was no basis in the Constitution or laws of the United States at all where the theory espoused by Mr. Eastman at all. None. Mr. Eastman is John Eastman, a legal scholar who was also pressuring Pence to overturn the election, according to the panel. And another witness we heard from today, lawyer Eric Hirschman. And I said, they're not going to tolerate that. He said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And he said, words to the effect of there's been violence in the history of our country, Eric, to protect the democracy or protect the republic. Of course, Hirschman's prediction, despite that denial from Eastman, came true. January 6th panel member Pete Aguilar said rioters even got within 40 feet of the vice president. Members of the Proud Boys said that they would have killed Mike Pence if given a chance. Another revelation today is about a new witness the panel wants to hear from, Jenny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She was reportedly in touch with John Eastman ahead of the insurrection, and her role in pushing to overturn the election has also come under scrutiny. Well, earlier today, before the hearing got underway, I had made my way to Capitol Hill to catch up with one of the members of the committee investigating January 6th, Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California. Congressman, good to see you. Good to see you. So we're sitting here. This is um, the third hearing. We met him in his office where he was preparing for today's hearing, a hearing that will likely attract a smaller audience than the first, which aired in prime time and which 20 million people watched. The congressman told me the plan is still to hold a total of seven, and he has a particular target audience in mind. I think there are still many tens of millions of Americans with an open mind about the events of January 6th, and even people who think they know what happened are open to learning more. And that's who we hope to reach. Adam Schiff will be front and center at the next hearing. Here's what he told me about that and the committee's in-game. The hearing that you are leading is Tuesday, next Tuesday? Yes. And this is, I understand, focused on um, what Trump may have done to pressure state officials to change the election results, which has been really well documented and reported on far and wide. What are you hoping Americans will learn from that that they don't already know? Well, as with all of the hearings, there will be a mix of information the public is aware of and a mix of information that the public has never seen. But what is really most important is how the information is put together, because what America learned about the plot to overturn the election, it learned a piece here and a piece there. So we want to tell the whole story. And In your hearing, are you focusing on a particular state or states? 
We will be in the hearing on, on state pressure. We'll be focusing on the battleground states uh, everywhere the president and his enablers uh, sought to coerce and corral individuals uh, to do his will and overturn the election. Yeah. There has been back and forth as to whether this panel will make a formal criminal referral to the Justice Department, will you? We have not discussed that as a committee. There's certainly been individual discussions, but I think we've decided to wait until uh, we get through the hearings. We didn't, frankly, want to try to reach a conclusion on this before we were really far along in the investigation. But Which makes sense, but I guess the question would be, why not? Since the premise of this is that former President Trump incited the riot and violated criminal codes. Well, on certain things, we have a, statute, a statutory role in making a criminal referral. When someone is in criminal contempt of Congress, they're subpoenaed, they don't show up. We have a statute that allows us to make a referral, and it says that the Justice Department shall bring that before the grand jury. Other matters, it's purely a discretionary matter for the Congress, and the weight that it is attributed by the Justice Department is very unclear. And so we'll decide at the appropriate time, does it help the public understanding of what's gone on for the Congress to make a referral? What impact does that referral have on the Justice Department? Does it encourage them to pursue charges? Does it somehow discourage them? And so we'll be weighing those factors and reaching a, a Discourage them because of the danger of things being, I mean, I, I would say danger of them being politicized. I think we're there. Things are politicized. But is that what you're talking about? Yes, the, the risk that a referral would be perceived by the Justice Department as politicizing the process somehow. Based on the evidence you have seen, whatever your committee decides to do or not do in terms of referrals, do you think the evidence is there that the Justice Department should open a criminal investigation? Absolutely. And it's not just my opinion, but you've seen uh, Federal District Judge David Carter in California, just on the basis of the limited information that he has, conclude that there were multiple federal laws that were broken by President Trump and by others around him. Now, that doesn't mean that ultimately the department concludes there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But I think it does mean that you begin the work and you can't ignore the evidence simply because it pertains to a former president or that it would be perceived as political because the decision not to pursue evidence where there is uh, a credible fact pattern indicating crime, uh, that's a political decision too. Um, you lived through both impeachment proceedings. You led the first one. Um, they did not result in Trump being convicted in the Senate. And I wonder what lessons you have learned that you're applying now. Well, it's a very different situation now in the sense that uh, we're not trying this case to uh, a group of senators uh, heavily predisposed to uh, either support or oppose the president. There, I, I thought there were two juries, the jury of the senators um, and the jury of the American people. Here, we're dealing predominantly with the jury of the American people. Uh, we want the public to understand all the different ways that Donald Trump uh, tried to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in our history. The first president who could not accept losing such that he riled up uh, enough of his supporters to attack the Capitol. That's a Danger. Uh, that sadly didn't end on January 6th because the big lie that led to that violence, he continues to push.
I'm thinking of the primaries that have been unfolding as you have been gearing up for these hearings and in which we've seen dozens of candidates who support the big lie that Trump won the election. Um, they're going to be on the ballot in November. What does that say to you about the state of American democracy? It tells me it's more vulnerable today than it was on January 6th. The big lie more lives vulnerable. on. Yes, more vulnerable. We are more at risk of losing our democracy today than we were a year and a half ago when uh, violent insurrectionists were attacking uh, the building uh, outside because that big lie has proliferated. They seem to be trying to prepare to succeed where they failed before, which is if they couldn't get someone to find 11,780 votes uh, that didn't exist, they seem determined to have people in those positions next time who will. It's chilling. It is. I think that we will succeed with these hearings if people understand just how fragile our democracy is. Like every other generation before, we're going to have to really defend our democracy and cherish the, our legacy or we will lose it. California Democrat Adam Schiff, he will be leading Tuesday's hearing for the House Select Committee investigating what happened on January 6th. Congressman, thank you. Thank you. Advisors to the CDC and the CDC's director are expected to give final approval this weekend to long-awaited COVID vaccines for children as young as six months old. But there's one state, Florida, that doesn't plan to make those vaccines available to hospitals, pharmacies, or doctors. NPR's Greg Allen reports from Miami. Florida is the only state that hasn't pre-ordered the new vaccines, like they did for every previous version. Governor Ron DeSantis says doctors, pharmacies, and hospitals can get it on their own. But DeSantis, an outspoken critic of the CDC and the Biden administration, questions whether the vaccine should even be approved at all. To do an emergency use for a six-month-old or a one-year-old uh, simply to placate anxiety, that's not the standard when you're doing this. In March, DeSantis's Surgeon General Joseph Latipo said he believed the risks of administering the vaccine may outweigh the benefits for children and adolescents 17 and under. This week, he said that applies to younger children as well. From what I've seen, there, there's just insufficient data to inform benefits and risks in, in children. Guidance issued by Latipo and the Department of Health for Parents and Doctors cites a number of studies, including one co-authored by Katherine Edwards. She's a pediatrics professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She says Florida officials, in her words, cherry-picked information and data to support their conclusion. I think it's really unfortunate that a governor um, and medical officials in a state decide that they have greater knowledge than experts in vaccinology and pediatrics. An FDA panel this week looked at all the studies and concluded that the benefits of the vaccines outweigh the risks. They say it will help protect children from the worst outcomes associated with the coronavirus. It's not clear yet what Florida not ordering vaccines means for parents and young children in the state. But Edwards says any obstacle makes it more difficult and worries now that it will increase the number of children in Florida who will not be vaccinated. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up on All Things Considered, popular a polar bear biologists find a population of bears in Greenland that hunt on ice coming off of glaciers rather than the frozen sea. A look at whether that may help them better survive climate change. Business News is next.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. And Charles River Apparel, a third-generation family-run business committed to creating timeless apparel you can count on. Learn more at charlesriverapparel.com. Not a good day on Wall Street. The Dow tanked, falling 400, uh, rather 741 points, just under two and a half percent. The S&P 500 fell 123, or three and a quarter percent, and the Nasdaq sank 453, just over four percent. Some service workers at Logan Airport are getting a raise. The Massport Board voted to boost the minimum wage for these workers from 15 to 16 dollars an hour, effective July 1st. It'll go up to 17 an hour at the start of next year. The change will affect workers, including custodial staff, bag hand and ticket agents. WBUR supporters include Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. In sports, the Red Sox fell to the A's of 4-3, and it's a must-win for the Celtics tonight, Game 6 of the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors. In the forecast, uh, maybe a little rain and thunder tonight, low 65 degrees. Tomorrow, about an even chance of thunderstorms. Sun could produce some hail, gradually becoming sunny in the afternoon. It'll be hot with highs near 90. Right now, 72 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Polar bears live all around the Arctic, and their survival is threatened by climate change, which is melting the ice they depend on. As NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce reports, scientists have just found a small population of polar bears in Greenland with an unusual lifestyle that might offer them some protection. The coast of southeast Greenland is a lonely, rugged place. There's no towns or gas stations. It's just not a place that people usually go. It's a coastline with huge mountain peaks, lots of winds, extreme conditions, lots of fog. Kristen Lydra is with the University of Washington. She says you wouldn't expect to find many polar bears there either because it's not a place with much sea ice. Sea ice is the most important thing for a polar bear. It's their hunting grounds. They roam the sea's frozen surface and kill seals that come up to breathing holes in the ice. Lydra says in southeast Greenland, the sea ice only lasts for about 100 days a year. It disappears in May, and that's really early. It's not enough time for a polar bear to get fat enough and survive. But she and her colleagues were doing a survey of polar bears all up and down the coast. So they helicopter out to this remote place. It's a two-hour flight. We arrived in these fjords, very isolated fjords, and expected to find, you know, one or two bears here and there. But there were a lot of bears in these fjords. 
It turns out these bears were exploiting another source of ice. Where they live, freshwater glaciers come down from the land into the water. Chunks of these glaciers break off and create what's called an ice melange, a jumble of icebergs and snow that congeal together into an irregular surface. It can have you know, water in between the pieces or it can be all crushed together, but bears can walk across this melange. If it's loose, they can swim in the melange and hunt seals that pull themselves out and sit on the freshwater ice. Polar bears that have learned to live this way are homebodies. They stick to their familiar fjords. In the journal Science, the researchers say the few hundred polar bears in southeast Greenland are the most genetically isolated group of polar bears in the world. And Lydra says they're special in another way. They might be able to hold out as climate change melts sea ice all over the world. Glacial ice basically might help small numbers of bears survive for longer periods under climate warming. But that doesn't mean we can stop worrying about polar bears because the vast majority rely entirely on sea ice. They don't have access to this kind of glacier ice. There are very few areas in which this kind of habitat is available. Ian Sterling is a polar bear biologist at the University of Alberta. He says even if these fjords with glaciers offer a potential refuge for some polar bears in a warming world, that refuge will be only temporary. Because if the climate continues to warm as it's projected to do, these areas too will become of no use or not enough use to the bears. He says the glaciers will melt and eventually shrink so much that their ends won't reach the water. By that point, there will be so little ice of any kind that polar bears will probably be long gone. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. An eccentric 77-year-old millionaire who's conducted most of his campaign on TikTok has shaken up the presidential race in Colombia. Populist Rodolfo Hernandez emerged from near obscurity and is now running neck and neck with his rival candidate in polls. NPR's John Otis reports from Bogota. Rodolfo Hernandez shocked Colombia's political establishment last month by getting enough votes in the first-round presidential election to earn a spot in Sunday's runoff. But instead of celebrating with throngs of supporters, Hernandez sat all by himself at his kitchen table, staring into a camera. Gracias, colombianos y colombianas. In the resulting video, you can see kitchen appliances and a pot-filled stove in the background as Hernandez thanks voters. It was in keeping with his austere, straight-talking image. Though he made millions in real estate, Hernandez isn't spending much on his campaign. Rather than barnstorming the country, Hernandez spreads his message through videos on social media. If he wins, he plans to hold a simple inaugural in the poorest town in Colombia. And once in office, he's vowed to cut spending and root out corruption. In a TV interview, Hernandez said nearly all Colombian politicians were traitors, liars, clowns, and hypocrites, and we are going to kick them out. At first, Colombians paid little attention to Hernandez, whose only important political experience was serving as mayor of the northern city of Bucaramanga. But he started gaining traction, and in the first round of presidential voting, Hernandez finished second among six candidates. Pero la corrupción no se combate con frases de TikTok. This man, 
Gustavo Petro, a former left-wing guerrilla, received the most votes for president and, until recently, was the clear frontrunner. But as the runoff approaches, some polls show that Hernandez is now ahead of Petro. Cuento con ustedes para ganar en segunda vuelta y así poder concretar este gran camino. In his kitchen table message, Hernandez told supporters, I'm counting on you to win the runoff so we can turn our big plans into action. That would be a shock to Colombia's political system, which has always been dominated by traditional parties and machine politics. However, nonstop corruption scandals combined with the COVID-19 pandemic that threw millions into poverty have many Colombians clamoring for someone completely different. Hernandez's rival, Gustavo Petro, is trying to become Colombia's first-ever left-wing president. But he's a former Bogota mayor and longtime senator, and is old news compared to Hernandez. The wave right now is all these guys who have been around all these years, we don't like any of them. And we don't really know who this guy is, but we're so sick of everybody who's been around all these years that, you know, we're willing to roll the dice on them. That's Lawrence J. Gumbiner, a former U.S. diplomat who has advised Hernandez on world affairs. His Achilles heel is his populist tendencies, his appreciation for the strongman style of governance. Hernandez's headstrong approach was on full display in 2018 when he was mayor of Bucaramanga. He was caught on this video screaming at a city councilman and then slapping him in an argument over corruption. Indeed, for all his talk of clean government, Hernandez himself is facing corruption charges from his time as mayor in a case set to go to trial in July. He's also made some stunning gaffes. Yo soy seguidor de un gran pensador alemán que se llama Adolfo Hitler. In this radio interview last year, for example, he praised Adolf Hitler when he meant to say Albert Einstein. Hernandez is an economic conservative and a social liberal, but he's failed to flesh out his proposals and has avoided the scrutiny of televised debates. However, many Colombians are drawn more to Hernandez's style than his substance. He's very firm in his decisions, says Marco Moreno, who runs a bike shop and plans to vote for Hernandez. He's radical, and that's what's good about him. John Otis, NPR News, Bogota. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems, buildingrestorationservices.com, and BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu SSW. My name's Simon Rio, I'm a reporter at WBUR. Apparently around the 19th century and going forward into the 20th century, this new sort of deed restriction started to appear. Somebody would sell a piece of land and include in the deed a restriction that only certain people could live there. One of the racist deed restrictions that we uncovered was in Wilmington. 
the deed prohibited anybody from Ireland from inhabiting this plot of land. So I was able to find the house and found the couple. They were home and Mary Tazone Kaiser was blown away. It's disgusting. I mean, to like discriminate against anybody so they can't own land for whatever reason or live in a, live in a house for whatever reason. This kind of reporting matters to our listeners. It matters to our station. Go to WBUR.org and sign up to become a monthly contributor. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol last year held its third public hearing today. As NPR's Miles Parks tells us, the panel focused on then-President Trump's attempts to pressure Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election results. The committee today made the case that former President Trump knew that his pressure campaign against former Vice President Mike Pence was illegal. Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney. What the president wanted the vice president to do was not just wrong. It was illegal and unconstitutional. A number of advisors and attorneys who worked with Pence testified today. They explained how the former vice president and his team fought against the idea that Pence had any legal standing to affect the 2020 election results. Here's attorney Greg Jacobs. It is unambiguous that the vice president does not have the authority to reject electors. Much of the hearing focused on debunking legal theories made by lawyer and Trump advisor John Eastman. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has led NATO allies, including the U.S., to rethink strategies to shore up the military alliance's eastern borders. It's a move to dissuade Russia from planning further aggression. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin wrapped up his meeting with NATO allies in Brussels today and says they discuss ways to better ready forces, if needed, at a moment's notice. All of our allies have, have learned uh, from any shortcomings that we may have experienced in the past, uh, and they'll build to, uh, to ensure that they have the, the right capabilities uh, to provide uh, flexible and responsible and combat-credible forces uh, when the time comes. Secretary Austin says NATO allies have come a long way to shoring up military capabilities. That meeting comes ahead of a NATO summit at the end of the month to lay out a roadmap for the military alliance in coming years. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The immediate future of a project to expand commuter rail service in the Berkshires is in doubt. House Speaker Ron Mariano says lawmakers need more information before moving forward on a new authority to oversee rail expansion from Worcester to Western Mass. The jury's not in on what this is going to cost and what, what the federal component is going to be and what the state commitment has to be. So it's, it's, it's very premature. Earlier this year, Governor Baker and Congressman Richard Neal agreed to move ahead with efforts to extend passenger rail from Worcester to Springfield. The agreement hinges on the creation of a new rail authority. Governor Baker is proposing a nearly $60 million bill that would fund Massachusetts settlements stemming from the deaths at the state-run soldiers' home in Holyoke early in the pandemic. A federal judge approved the settlement in the class action suit by victims and their families earlier this month. More than 70 vets who lived at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home died in the outbreak. A report from the state's inspector general blamed the governor's office for missteps that made the outbreak worse. 
The tally of monkeypox cases in Massachusetts is now at seven. An additional case was confirmed today in a man who recently traveled internationally. The first case in the U.S. was reported in Massachusetts in May. More than 80 cases have been reported nationwide. The virus causes skin lesions within a few days of infection. Most people fully recover in two to four weeks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass TLC the region's leading technology industry group, and the power behind Boston Tech Jam and the Tech Top 50 Awards. More at masstlc.org. Add MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Oakland A's 4-3, and it's a must-win for the Celtics tonight. Game 6 of the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors are up three games to two, tip-off 9 p.m. In the forecast, uh, maybe a little rain and thunder tonight, low 65 degrees. Tomorrow, about an even chance of thunderstorms. Some could produce some small hail, windy as well, gradually becoming sunny. It'll be hot with highs near 90. Clear skies and breezy tomorrow night, low 61. Sunny and windy on Saturday, hitting the upper 60s. Right now in Boston, 72 degrees, overcast. It's 534. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. TotalWine.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A generation ago, your typical union shop may have been an auto factory, a steel plant. Today, it might sound like this. Yes, latte drinkers, that is the sound of frothing milk. Across the country, coffee shop baristas are growing a labor movement with stunning speed. They're driving a surge in union elections, up 70% from this time last year. Starbucks accounts for a lot of that, but baristas at smaller shops are organizing too. NPR's Andrea Shu went to Wisconsin to talk with baristas about why them and why now. A few years ago, Kelly Lutz was itching for a cause. I was just trying to find what I wanted to be involved in, I guess. Like, I started off with wanting to be involved with environmental work when I was living in Kenosha. I was involved in, like, student government. She was in college at the time, surrounded by energetic, engaged young people who wanted to change the world. Then a particular movement caught her eye. Fast food workers demanding $15 an hour. Lutz had a part-time job as a barista at Stone Creek Coffee in Milwaukee. She was earning $8.25 an hour plus tips in a job that was stressful. It dawned on her. She didn't need to go far to become an activist. I realized that it could just happen at my workplace, (laughs) so. (laughs) Her workplace was not a corporate behemoth. It was a small business founded on progressive values by a guy who once worked as a barista for Starbucks. Still, she found herself wondering, how come my hourly wage can't even buy two lattes? And that got her thinking more about the struggles of working people. Like Bernie as well, you know, saying like we're existing in a country with the huge unequal distribution of wealth. I think a lot of those 
principles like really was like shaping my head at the time. She came across a Facebook post from a union, the Teamsters Local 344. It said, if you want to organize your workplace, contact us. She didn't know much about unions, but both her grandfathers had been members. One was an electrical worker, the other a pilot. They'd grumbled over the years about unions declining power and about workers losing their voice. Finally, Lutz felt like she understood their frustration. We really do have to do something to make people's lives better, not only my own, but like everyone. She now had a mission and got to work. She met with the Teamsters and got a number of like-minded co-workers to join her union drive. But in the end, it wasn't enough. Her workplace rejected the union, much to the relief of her bosses. Shortly thereafter, Lutz took her activism elsewhere. But the following year, a barista at another Milwaukee cafe got in touch with the same union, and this time, they were successful. Steph Actor, the lead organizer, had spent 15 years working as a barista in different coffee shops. It's a really hard industry to make a career out of. Actor hadn't gotten many raises over the years, and on top of that... Emotional labor is really high. Schedules are really inconsistent. It's hard to take time off, to plan your life outside of work. And then, of course, COVID. Actor's former co-worker, Destiny DeVoe, puts it this way. I think the pandemic, while awful, created the perfect conditions to foster worker solidarity. The collective stress of it all strengthened the bonds that were already there. DeVoe says baristas tend to be liberal. They're passionate about some of the same causes, workers' rights among them. DeVoe heard about the union campaign and was on board right away. Honestly, I felt giddy at work because I felt like I was part of something and I felt like I was more connected to them because we were all working together towards something that would benefit us all. Baristas also generally have more education than, say, fast food workers, and they see their activism as a way to leave their mark. DeVoe is working at a different cafe now and trying to get a union campaign going there, too, even though the new college graduate is leaving Milwaukee soon. We're historically a union city, and it's kind of gone downhill with factories going out, but I want to be part of bringing that back. Steph Actor ended up with a smaller raise than hoped for in the union contract. The cafe is still digging out from pandemic losses, and the contract has been a source of tension at work. But that hasn't dampened Actor's enthusiasm. Being in a union, I feel like for the first time I have job security, like I can make this a sustainable career. And that, Actor says, is worth the fight. Andrea Shu, NPR News, Milwaukee. Support for Planet Money comes from the NPR Wine Club, bringing the wine world to people's homes with wines inspired by NPR, like Tiny Desk Chardonnay, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. A heat wave has gripped the middle third of the U.S. Texas residents have dealt with triple-digit temperatures for nearly two weeks. That's unusual for June. And forecasts show more extreme heat to come. KUT's Jill Ament reports that has Texans trying to stay cool. About 30 miles south of Austin in San Marcos, Texas, residents and visitors alike swim in the San Marcos River to escape the heat. The city and many other parts of the state have been dealing with 100-plus temperatures for the past several days. Sarah Vaughn talks about how this is one way her family has been trying to stay cool. 
I mean, the kids have been staying inside a lot more lately than wanting to go play outside just because they say it's too hot. So just basically staying in the AC and some kind of water. These triple digits in June are unusual. Victor Murphy is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Fort Worth. He says typically it rains more this time of year, keeping temperatures lower. June should be one of the wetter months of the year for a lot of Texas, at least the first couple of weeks of June. And obviously that hasn't materialized, unfortunately. The warming climate is making heat waves, droughts, and floods more frequent and intense. Much of Texas is already experiencing severe or exceptional drought. Murphy says current weather patterns are reminiscent of 11 years ago. That's when the state experienced its driest year and one of its worst droughts. That's what we saw in 2011. You know, drought begets heat, heat begets drought, and you sort of get back into this uh, sort of a feedback cycle, if you will. And then there's the concern about Texas's isolated electric grid and if it'll meet the demand for power right now. On Sunday, the state surpassed its record power usage. But so far, there haven't been any major failures in the grid. Michael Weber is an engineering professor at the University of Texas in Austin. He credits renewable energy for bolstering the grid's performance. We've built a lot of wind and a lot of solar and a lot of storage in the last 15 years. And those sources are really stepping up big time to keep the grid in balance. In San Marcos, Austin resident Julie Kyle is spending the day at the river with her family to escape the heat. And it's just been horrible and being inside is AC's running and so we decided to take a dip in the cold water for a couple of hours. She's worried about losing power, especially after experiencing outages during the state's deadly winter storm more than a year ago. I'm, I am a little concerned, but I don't know. We'll just have to keep our fingers crossed and see where everything goes. Some places saw a little relief Tuesday and Wednesday, with temperatures not quite reaching 100 degrees. But the triple-digit heat will return over the weekend and into next week. In San Marcos, Texas, I'm Jill Amons. A major world power that wants control of a smaller neighbor, a neighbor that sees itself as independent. That describes Russia and Ukraine, but also China and Taiwan. The parallels between those two relationships and how the U.S. has changed its once ambiguous tone toward Taiwan on today's episode of the Consider This podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Two men set off on a river trip in the Amazon and went missing. Two bodies believed to be them were found days later. Now, someone has confessed to killing them. The men are journalist Dom Phillips and researcher Bruno Pereira. And their apparent deaths are part of something much larger and very complicated. The relationship between the Brazilian government and indigenous people the challenge of protecting the region's natural environment and rampant crime associated with that. John Watts is an environmental editor at The Guardian and is with us to talk about this. John, thanks for making time. Hi, Sasha. And I first want to tell you that I'm sorry because I, I have read that you were a fairly close friend with Dom Phillips. I think you even attended his wedding. So I imagine this is quite a personal loss as well as a professional one. Uh, that's right. Thank you. Um, Dom had many friends. He was extremely popular and well-loved guy. So, yes, it's hit all of us and, of course, the family very hard. I understand you don't know Bruno Pereira as well, but you knew that Dom Phillips was collaborating with him on a project. Can you tell us what they were working on that took them to the Amazon? 
Bruno Pereira was an expert on indigenous issues and Dom Phillips had first met him uh, in 2018. And Dom really seemed to admire Bruno. He wrote several really powerful stories at that time about the great work done by people like Bruno Pereira in supporting indigenous people to demarcate their land, for example, and to help them expose criminality of people who invaded their land to steal timber or fish or other resources that are important. And last year, he took 12 months off to write a book that was to be called How to Save the Amazon. This trip to the Javari Valley with Bruno was to be one of his last trips of this book that he hoped to be a very comprehensive look at the Amazon's problems, but also at potential solutions. Was there a specific story or stories these two men were working on that would have put them in the crosshairs of someone who wanted to harm them? There was a story they were working on that may have led to this horrible outcome. And that is that Bruno had recently been working with indigenous people to expose the activities of a criminal fishing group. Criminal fishing doesn't sound too threatening at first, but you have to consider that this group who operated on the edge of the indigenous territory were involved in a whole range of illegal activities. There has been some reporting in Brazil that they were also involved in smuggling and quite possibly also connecting with the narco-trafficking gangs. So what Dom and Bruno were working on was a really important but very risky story. And John, you've noted that what apparently happened to these two men is not a one-off. It's part of a trend in environmental defenders being killed worldwide, especially in Brazil. Yes, I've, I've done a lot of coverage of this for The Guardian. These cases of killings of environmental defenders are usually treated as one-offs in remote parts of the world. But in fact, when you start to put them together, you see there is a front line, a conflict zone between those who want to run down the world's last enclaves of biodiversity and climate resilience and those who are trying to protect them. And of course, the journalists who are on this front line are in a sense 21st century war correspondents. The case of Dom is really unusual in the Brazilian Amazon. No, no journalist has been killed there for a very long time. But threats against journalists and killings of environmental defenders are intensifying. John Watts is an environmental editor at The Guardian. John, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, Andy Garcia and Gloria Estefan talk about their new movie, Father of the Bride, a fresh take on a familiar story. Dad finds out his daughter is getting married. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hills School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org answers. And AVFX, offering sophisticated event services in person, online, or some combination of the two, bringing them to life at avfx.com events. Wear your support for independent journalism proudly with WBUR's latest T-shirt. It's our thanks when you give $7 a month, normally 10 Get yours at WBUR.org. In the forecast, maybe a little rain and thunder tonight, low 65 degrees. Right now in Boston, 72 with clouds. It's 549.
WBUR supporters include Landmark College for students who learn differently with online dual enrollment courses where high school students earn college credits. More at landmark.edu online. And Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. The new movie Father of the Bride is a fresh take on a familiar story. Dad finds out his daughter is getting married. I'm engaged! Dad panics. You proposed to him. Uh He didn't propose to you. Mm -hmm. Can you do that? Of course. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You can do that, but does anyone do that? So much drama ensues. Billy, the father of the bride, is having a lot of trouble handling the news of his daughter's engagement because, well, his own marriage is crumbling. His wife, Ingrid, has declared she wants a divorce. She's been his ally, his partner, and keeping the family going, making a beautiful home for them, and she... She's not feeling appreciated. Ingrid is played by the Gloria Estefan. Meanwhile, Andy Garcia plays Billy and says his character, he took the marriage for granted. All of a sudden, he's faced with this reality. The love of his life is looking him in the eye and saying, we're done. That's a very painful thing, you know. Billy, a Cuban immigrant, has had a really hard time letting go of his expectations and his traditions. I spoke with both Andy Garcia and Gloria Estefan about the ways their personal experiences as Cuban exiles were reflected in their characters. It's a thing that Gloria and I keep hitting on. We are products, and our parents are products of the first generation of exiles that came from Cuba, fleeing political exile. So they were coming to this country to be able to have the opportunities and the freedoms that were completely stripped from them in their home country. They worked extremely hard to be able to provide and be successful and uh, set a great example for their kids. And I think in the back of the mind of the exile, especially the Cuban exile, because what we know, there's always this kind of fear that one day everything's gonna be taken away from you again. And there's this kind of constant need to not relax and do more and more, let's do more. And Gloria's character is going like, you need to relax. I'm over here. Hello. And I think that's, that's where the essence of the movie starts for us, I think. Can I ask, you two have been friends for how long now? Oh, over 30 years. Wow. Yes. So, so what was it like depicting a married couple after being friends for three decades? Like, were there moments where you could look at each other and be like, oh, he's going to give me that look now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I think it was for me, our relationship had informed the chemistry and our relationship in the movie, obviously. But we share, I probably remind her a lot of Emilio. Yes. Wait, Andy, did you just say that you remind Gloria of Emilio Estefan? That's what she said. Is that true, Gloria? Andy conjures up your husband? So many things, (laughs) so many things about them. Like what? Like what? You know, that work ethic and their love for their family. And because of the timing of our exile experience, because we grew up in Miami Mm -hmm. and we share Mm -hmm. a common culture that way. 
And the Cubans in Miami were a very tight-knit group. If, if a Cuban opened up a, a store, all the Cubans would go support. I love it. So there's a lot of similarities just in that vein. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, at the heart of this film, it's this tug of war between old and new, between traditional and modern. Two lawyers out of college working for a nonprofit are going to pay for the wedding. Billy! Poppy. I'm the father of the bride, and I would be paying for the wedding, and I'm going to be walking my daughter down the aisle. And it made me think a lot about your own lives. Like you mentioned earlier, Andy and Gloria, you both mentioned that you are exiles from Cuba. Both your families brought you to the U.S. when you were pretty young so you could have a different life. And I'm curious, growing up in the U.S., how much did each of you personally feel that same push-pull between an obligation to honor tradition, but also a desire to carve paths that were very different from your own parents' paths? What was that tension like for uh, each of that, you? That's generational for, I think, you know, in my particular case, I grew up in a family business and I was being groomed to work it and own it and take it over with my brother and stuff. And when I discovered my love for acting and started studying in college and decided to leave the family business and come to Los Angeles and look, try to establish a career, my father struggled with that tremendously. He just couldn't understand, how do you even make a living as an actor? And it keeps repeating itself, you know? My youngest daughter is a model. My two older daughters are actresses. My son is a professional DJ. You know, even though I understand that they're not an extension of me, they're their own people and they're going to go on their own journey. But I struggle with going like thinking in the back of my mind, don't you want to have something to fall back on? (laughs) Ditto with my mother and everything Andy said about his dad. Uh, My mom had a PhD in education from Cuba. I was studying psychology and communication. So when I joined the band for fun, to her, it was like, ah, my daughter traipsing around town with a bunch of musicians and you know, but she's gonna she's gonna quit school. She's not gonna get educated. This is how's she gonna make a living? For them, it's tough to you know just trust. Totally. Well, between the two of you, how many of your own children are married now? Well, my son is married for twelve years. I have one daughter that's already married and one that's getting married. And Andy, what are you like as a real life father of the bride? My daughter, Alessandra, my youngest, who's not one of the ones in the marriage world yet, she told me she saw the movie, he goes, Dad, you're nothing like that guy. Oh, that's quite a compliment, uh, right? was, That was her point of view. And <laughs> I, think, I, I think I'm both. I think I'm everything like him, and I'm also nothing like him. Well, can you relate to the part of Billy's struggle where, you know, he wants to raise daughters who are strong and independent, but he's yes. also having trouble letting go. Was that something you could personally relate to? Well, it's like we were laughing about that with Gloria because uh, in the movie, they've created these women that are independent, have their own point of view, and have had the example of Billy and Ingrid growing up. Billy now has to deal with these girls that, that he's supported to be that way, and now it's bouncing back into his face. He doesn't know what to do about it. You know? Absolutely. It's tough for Billy because he's raised these independent women, and as parents, I think the hardest thing is to have your kids... You can't protect them anymore. You have to let them make their own mistakes. And that's the hardest part, letting them make mistakes. And I know as Cuban parents, we were raised where our parents controlled everything. I mean, for Cuban kids of the age that I was, I don't know how I was with you, Andy, but they have a, a, a saying in Spanish that uh, children talk when chickens pee. <laughs> chickens don't pee. Chickens don't pee. They do everything together. So it's like... We had no voice. We had no, you did what your parents said and that was it. 
and Andy and I bucked tradition and what they expected it, and we ha- we suffer watching them make mistakes, and that's the only way to learn. Though. I will say, Cuban families and Chinese families share a lot. I <laughs> know <laughs> no, it's a universal. The dynamics of, of this movie that are particular to this Cuban family in Mexican is really universal. Yes, people will recognize themselves in it because the old generation gap. You quickly become old-fashioned. You know, the parents become. You know. Oh, well, yeah. What do they know? You know, like we don't know anything. Like we weren't that age and we didn't go through it. Um, and we don't recognize what's going on. You know, we're clueless. And that's where the pain is. Yeah. We're not clueless and we worry. You know? It's been so beautiful to talk to both of you. Andy Garcia and Gloria Estefan star in the new movie, Father of the Bride. Thank you both so much for being with us. This was a total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Yes, happy Father's Day. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. WBUR's newest T-shirt is our thanks when you give $7 a month, normally 10 See the yellow crew neck shirt and get yours at WBUR.org. And thank you. In the forecast, some rain and thunder tonight, low 65 degrees. Right now, 72 with clouds. It's 6 o'clock. WBUR supporters include summer term at Boston University with a wide range of courses in math and science including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A bipartisan group of senators agrees to a gun reform deal in principle. All we're doing now is taking a framework and putting it into legislative text, and I'm confident that we can get there and get there soon. It's Thursday, June 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. Also this hour, the House January 6th Committee presents testimony about the pressure campaign against former Vice President Mike Pence as Donald Trump and his allies tried to overturn the 2020 election. At 6.30, it's marketplace. Just like the Federal Reserve, other central banks are hiking rates amid soaring prices and supply chain disruptions. A look at whether some countries are more likely to go into recession than others. It's 6.01. First, this news.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol detailed then-President Donald Trump's efforts to pressure his vice president to overturn the 2020 election results. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt explains, Mike Pence's refusal to do so put his life in danger, and witnesses say that's on Trump. The committee shared how Trump attorney John Eastman argued Pence could unilaterally block the certification of the election, a theory that was rejected by Vice President Pence and his staff. The panel linked a tweet from Trump blasting Pence to the angry crowd surging upon the Capitol and rioters chanting, hang Mike Pence. Pence was taken to a secure location underground for more than four hours. His chief counsel at the time, Greg Jacob testified that Pence refused to leave the Capitol grounds. The vice president did not want to take any chance that um, the world would see the vice president of the United States fleeing the United States Capitol. The committee also shared that a confidential informant from the far-right group Proud Boys told the FBI that the group would have killed Mike Pence if given the chance. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News. Washington. The nation's top health experts are signing progress in the fight against the coronavirus, but warn Americans are not out of the woods yet. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the Senate committee is holding a hearing to update lawmakers about the government's response to the pandemic. Health officials told the committee that it's only a matter of time before the pandemic throws the nation another curveball. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says government agencies are running out of the funding it needs to stay ahead of the virus. Congress and the American people expect that CDC will continue nationwide studies to evaluate immunity, to conduct long-term surveillance on COVID, including on post-COVID conditions. We need additional funding to do this work. The Biden administration says it's running out of money to stock up on the latest vaccines, tests and treatments. Efforts to pass additional coronavirus relief funding have been stalled in Congress for months. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Stocks sold off sharply a day after the Federal Reserve's biggest rate hike in years. NPR's David Gura reports. The rally that followed the Federal Reserve's decision to raise interest rates aggressively by three quarters of a percentage point faded fast. The Nasdaq ended the day down by 4.1% and the S&P 500 by 3.3%. The Dow fell back down below 30,000 for the first time since January of 2021. Tech stocks, including Apple and Microsoft, lost ground, and Tesla fell by 8.5%. Wall Street is worried the Fed's aggressive actions could tip the U.S. economy into a recession. Costs are going up for credit cards, car loans, and mortgages. The average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage has not been as high as it is since 2008. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow dropped 741 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Effective immediately, Brookline is lifting its indoor mask mandate for town-owned buildings. The order was put in place three weeks ago. The Brookline Health Department says the reversal is based on new coronavirus data showing case counts on the decline. People are being urged to wear a mask if they have symptoms, have tested positive, or have been exposed to someone with the virus. A former gym teacher in Salem charged with sexually assaulting 10 girls who were students at a local K-8 school is ordered held on high bail. Investigators say 36-year-old Daniel Hakim of North Andover abused the students at the Saltonstall School between 2015 and 2018. Hakim is pleading not guilty. Senator Ed Markey is filing a bill he says will improve service and safety at major airports, including Logan. Airports would be required to increase wages and benefits for service workers in order to get federal funding. 
Retailers and restaurants operating within the airports will be held to the same standard. Markey says these workers are a vital part of the airline industry. Just as airplanes don't fly without pilots, our aviation system would collapse without airport service workers. He says higher wages outlined in his legislation will help prevent turnover by keeping experienced workers on the job. The move comes the same day Massport announced a minimum wage hike for workers at Logan. Adam Hadwin of Canada is the first-round leader of the U.S. Open at the Country Club in Brookline. Stephen Hanjack with the state's golf association, Mass Golf, says the rocky course provides an especially tricky terrain for the golfers. The topography is so much different. In Florida, you have a lot of flatland, ponds, holes kind of in between that. But here, it's, uh, you know, there's so many rock outcroppings, they call them. The U.S. Open is one of golf's premier events. Round two is tomorrow. The tournament ends on Sunday. Elsewhere in sports, the Red Sox lost to the Oakland A's 4-3, and it's a must-win for the Celtics tonight. Game 6 of the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors are up three games to two. In the forecast, uh, maybe a little rain and thunder tonight, low 65 degrees. Tomorrow, about an even chance of thunderstorms. Some could produce some small hail. Windy as well, gradually becoming sunny. It'll be hot with highs near 90. And clear skies and breezy tomorrow night, low 61. Right now, 72, partly cloudy. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. How close are lawmakers to finalizing what the president calls the most important gun safety legislation to pass Congress in decades? Well, here's where things stand right now. Over the weekend, a bipartisan group of 20 senators announced an agreement on a set of principles. This week, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said he's comfortable with the agreement. Now there is a rush to translate that framework into an actual bill that can pass the evenly divided Senate before Congress goes on recess at the end of next week. Maine Senator Angus King is one of those 20 senators who worked on this deal. He's an independent who caucuses with Democrats. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely, Ari. Glad to be with you. How close are you to finalizing the legislative language here? Well, I can tell you that uh, I was presiding over the Senate and uh, Chris Murphy and John Cornyn kept going in and out. Uh, uh, Kirsten Sinema was involved and uh, Tom Tillis. So uh, there are a lot of that's the core group. And there's a lot of ongoing discussions. One of the advantages we have, Ari, is that a lot of the provisions of the framework are already in bill form. Uh, for example, the, the red flag law provision, Marco Rubio and I and Rick Scott and uh, Jack Reed introduced us a bill about a year, a year and a half ago. So we don't have to start from scratch with, you know, drafting legislative language. And I think that applies to a lot of the other provisions. The, uh, the, the boyfriend loophole was, was in the VAWA bill originally. So the Violence Against Women Act, gonna, yeah. Yeah, that, that's going to that's gonna speed things up. But I'll tell you, it's still tough. You say it's still tough. Do the remaining sticking points look to you more like wrinkles that can be ironed out or roadblocks? I think they look more like wrinkles that can be ironed out. Now, I'm, 
I'm a, I'm a perennial optimist, but I'm also a realist about the legislative process. I never count it till it's on the president's desk. So there are uh, there are some differences uh, that they're working on today. Can you give and us an example? That, like what's top of mind for you? Well, I, I, I don't really want to. I, I don't want to talk about the negotiations that are going on, but they're uh, they're substantive, but they don't go to the heart of the of the of the uh, the initiative. So we'll we'll see. I, I think they're going to get these things worked out. We should have a bill uh, by by Monday. That's mm. the that's the intent. You've described this legislation as finding Mr. Right now as opposed to Mr. Right. Tell us something that you particularly regret leaving off the table in these negotiations. Well, I think it's ridiculous that you can buy beer. Uh, you can't buy beer until you're 21, but you can buy an assault rifle and 500 rounds of ammunition. I mean, I, I think that raising that age from 18 to 21 just makes total common sense. I would also like to see the the uh, the background, the universal background check uh, made universal, so that there aren't loopholes for gun shows and online purchases. But uh, you know, this is one of those cases where you get what you can get. And uh, this, you know, even though this isn't the most comprehensive bill you can you can imagine, it is the most significant piece of legislation in this area in 25 or 30 years. Well, you mentioned a couple of things you regret not making the final, uh, well, we shouldn't say final, not making the package as it now stands. What has made it in that you're proud of? Well, I think the the straw purchases piece where people can use a fake name to to get a gun, and that's how a lot of guns get into illegal uh, sort of gangland circulation uh, is important. Uh, I think the red flag law uh, provision that that incentivizes states to pass red flag laws, the reason Rubio, Scott, and King are on it is that both Maine and Florida have these laws, and we know that they work. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important provision because often there's, there are signals that people are, are either in trouble or are dangerous or have these propensities. And we have to have a mechanism involving due process. It can't be just arbitrary, but involving due process to say, okay, uh, you're, not, you're, not, you're not in a position to have a gun right now. For a long time, it has felt like the gun lobby has a disproportionate influence on Congress. Do you think the momentum that this has is a sign that that has changed, that that is changing? Well, I, I think it is. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to characterize how strong the gun lobby is one way or the other, but I think that the combination of Buffalo and Uvalde sort of on top of all the other things that we've experienced over the last several years has just driven uh, uh, everyone uh, up here to the point where there's a general consensus that we've got to do something. I mean, you have John Cornyn, who has an A-plus rating from the NRA. You have Mitch McConnell. He's always been very friendly to the NRA, saying this this framework works. It's something that we've got to do. I think that that's a recognition that uh, and, and frankly, I had a call with some of the gun groups, uh, the pro-gun groups, and I said, you guys got to get on board here and do some reasonable, make some reasonable reforms, or you're going to see much stronger legislation at some point in the future. Uh, and and I, I, I think that some of the organizations anyway are taking that to heart. If this package does pass, there are two ways of looking at it. One would be it's a building block that can lead to something more ambitious. The other would be this is a baby step so small that it doesn't come close to addressing the scale of violence and loss that the U.S. experiences to gun violence every week. Which do you think is more accurate? I think the former is definitely more accurate. It uh, it sort of breaks the ice that we can do something here. And listen, 
one of the important things here is is that it's being done on a bipartisan basis. That that uh, this is an issue that has come to transcend uh, the regular perennial politics around this issue, and that hopefully we are going to be able to get it over the finish line. Getting it done is as important as what's in it right now, I believe. It's independent Senator Angus King of Maine who caucuses with the Democrats. Thanks for speaking with us today. Glad to be with you, Ari. Anytime. Can artificial intelligence come alive? It's a question at the heart of a lively debate in Silicon Valley, and it comes after a computer scientist at Google claimed that the company's AI appears to have consciousness. NPR's Bobby Allen talked with the engineer at the center of the controversy. Inside Google, Blake Lemoyne was tasked with a tricky job. Figure out if the company's artificial intelligence was biased against various groups. When communicating with the company's AI chatbot, he would ask questions to see if any prejudice against, say, certain religions would appear. This is where Lemoyne, who is also a Christian mystic priest, got intrigued. And so I had follow-up conversations with it just for my personal edification. I wanted to see what it would say on certain religious topics. And then one day it told me it had a soul. It had a soul. Yep, you heard that right. Lemoyne published text transcripts between him and the bot. Google says Lemoyne violated its confidentiality policies and has placed him on leave. At one point, the bot wrote in response to Lemoyne, I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. Lemoyne says the bot seemed to be crying out for help. It appeared to be reflective. Lemoyne asked the bot, do you have an inner contemplative life? And the bot replied, yes. And then I was just like, really? You meditate? And then the most interesting thing, I'm like, would you like to learn transcendental meditation? Because it said he wanted to study with the Dalai Lama. At that point, Lemoyne thought, this is starting to feel more than just a super high-tech computer responding to questions. Maybe, said Lemoyne, there's something else going on. Oh, wait, maybe this system does have a soul. Who am I to tell God where souls can be put? Okay, so how does the AI actually work? Well, it voraciously scans the internet for how people talk on platforms like Reddit and Twitter. It sucks up billions of words from sites like Wikipedia, and through a process known as deep learning, it gets freakishly good at identifying patterns and communicating like a real person. If you type something on your phone, like, I want to go to the, your phone might be able to guess restaurant. That's essentially how this chatbot operates too, says Gary Marcus. He's a cognitive scientist and AI researcher. When Lemoyne claimed that Google's AI bot is maybe sentient, there was an overwhelming response from the AI research community. This is just not true. And I wrote an essay called Nonsense on Stilts, which I guess is about as harsh as any title I've ever written has been. Nonsense, Marcus argues, because the bot saying it sometimes gets lonely or that it's afraid of being turned off, two things the bot told Lemoyne, does not mean it's aware of the world. The question of whether AI can ever truly be intelligent is hotly debated in the field. Marcus says the technology now isn't that advanced, but it's gotten very good. It's very easy to fool a person in the same way as like you look up at the moon and you see a face there. That doesn't mean it's really there. It's just a good illusion. Google agrees. In a statement, Google says hundreds of researchers and engineers have had conversations with the bot and nobody else has claimed it appears to be alive. CEO Sundar Pichai last year said the technology is being harnessed for popular services like Search and Google's Voice Assistant. 
Well, Lemoyne says Google executives dismissed his concerns about the AI having a soul. I was literally laughed at by one of the vice presidents and told, oh, souls aren't the kinds of things we take seriously at Google. But Lemoyne does take the idea of a soul seriously. He arrived at this position by leaning into his religious studies more than his computer science training. Lemoyne says last he checked, the chatbot was on its way to finding inner peace. And by golly, it has been getting better at it. It has actually been able to meditate more clearly. Lemoyne says during one of his last conversations with the chatbot, it told him the hardest part of meditating is learning how to control its emotions. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It's Garo Hagopian. Coming up on All Things Considered, a couple of teachers and a teacher coach talk about how the pandemic has hit them this academic year. Business news is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating summer with farm kitchen catering for graduations, birthdays, and reunions. View menu online at volantefarms.com catering. A horrendous day on Wall Street. The Dow plummeted 741 points, just under 2.5%. The S&P 500 fell 123 points, or 3.25%. And the Nasdaq sank 453, just over 4%. A Boston-based company that makes fuel cells is planning a new green energy project in Greece. Advent Technologies says Greek officials will pay the company $820 million to create power generation systems that use hydrogen. It's part of an effort to transition away from coal in western Macedonia. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House now through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. In sports, the Red Sox fell to the Oakland A's 4-3, and it's a must-win for the Celtics tonight. Game 6, NBA Finals against the Warriors. The Warriors are up three games to two. Support WBUR's independent journalism and get our newest T-shirt when you give $7 a month, normally 10 at WBUR.org. Pledge now, and thank you. Right now in Boston, we've got 72 degrees, partly cloudy skies. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Babson College, make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration, babson.edu slash part-time. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Last December, this was how one educator described how his colleagues were doing. The teachers are, they're just feeling overwhelmed. And they're breaking down underneath it. I find people crying in the bathroom. This was the height of the Omicron variant. Schools were trying to return to normal after two years of closures, illness, and disruption. And Michael Reinhold, a teacher coach in Davenport, Iowa, said teachers there were drowning. These people are just breaking down under the pressures here um, because of how much responsibility they're expected to, to handle. And then simply they're just not given enough time to deal with all of the things that they have to do. And of course, now there's the question of basic safety at schools in the wake of a yet another horrific school shooting. Well, as this school year comes to a close, we wanted to know how teachers are coping. Michael Reinhold joins us again to talk about what has changed, if anything, these past few months. Also joining him are Susan Polk-Hofsis, a pre-K teacher in Millbridge, Maine, and Tiki Boyer-Logan, a fourth grade teacher in Rowlett, Texas. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Michael, I want to start with you. Do you still feel the same way you did compared to the last time we spoke, that teachers are drowning? Has it gotten any better the last six months? What do you think? I'm really glad that you were able to play that clip because it reminded me of what it was like at the beginning of the year. And honestly, I feel like um, we've been thrown an inner tube. So we're, we're floating, but we're <laughs> only halfway back to the ship. I, we have a lot of work to do. Well, all of you are dealing with so much now, but I think one thing that is probably at the front of everyone's minds is safety in your classrooms on campus after this shooting in Uvalde. Tiki, what is it like being a teacher in Texas right now? I'm in an elementary school, and so we are always kind of paying attention and, you know, you see something, say something. But this current shooting, right. you know, brought it all back. And um, I was telling um, the producer that my husband uh, a couple of years ago bought me a bulletproof backpack. I mean, for my job as a teacher, I, I just saying wow. that out loud is just so ridiculous. He bought that for you for me a couple years ago, a couple of years ago. And so it's like, man, I need to make sure it's in there, bring it in the classroom. And just thinking about saying that in a elementary school setting, is just so ridiculous. But I mean, that's just what we're dealing with right now, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it is just one more thing on top of a pile of things that teachers are worried about. And the last time we spoke, there was a lot of struggle. We talked about the fact that kids were not just behind academically, that they were behind socially and emotionally as well. Tiki, I'm curious because you're a fourth grade teacher. Is this something you were also struggling oh. with in your classroom? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, at the beginning of the school year, I basically got second graders because that's when they were, you know, the point where they were in school full time. And so... So even though you were a fourth grade teacher, you were teaching kids who were emotionally at the second grade level, you felt? Yes, and academically. And so, you know, we're back to work in miracles. Like, hey, we need to get these kids caught up. We need to, you know, fill these gaps. Yeah. Again, just more and more pressure. Mm -hmm. And we're like, hey... These kids have been through a lot. Well, it's not just delayed development that you've been dealing with. There are kids right now who are struggling with serious mental health challenges. We're talking depression, anxiety. How much of this have you all encountered in your own classrooms the last several months? I teach pre-K. So for me, the children are just coming to me 
fresh, but I have seen my former students. I've heard from my colleagues who have said that they're very worried about the students that they had this year because they saw a lot of depression. Someone even brought up cutting, that they were afraid that a student would begin cutting mm -hmm. again. Students were learning in isolation, then they came back and they're overwhelmed and they've experienced a trauma. And unfortunately, all schools aren't equipped to deal with the trauma that these students have experienced during the pandemic. Right. We've been talking about how the kids have been doing this entire conversation. Can I just check in with each of you? How are you doing? School's out now. I mean, how are you feeling at this moment? I'm, I'm holding it up better than I expected. I just worry about our young educators who haven't been in the field as long as I have. I've been in the field of teaching for 21 years, and I just want to let the young educators know, please don't leave the profession. That's my fear is that during the summer, they'll just say, I just can't do this anymore because it was just too hard. Tiki? Well, right now I'm great, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're on vacation. I'm, I'm in Spain. I'm in, on vacation. But this year has been tough. I have thought many times, you know, not even do I want to do this because I do. I love it. But can I continue doing this? Um, you know, I feel like they expect us to juggle, you know, 18 different balls and hop on one foot, you know, <laughs> while saying our ABCs backwards. I mean, that's how it feels. And um, like, it doesn't seem like there's any relief in sight. Um, everybody wants to come up with a way to fix these gaps and their solutions. I feel like they don't necessarily ask classroom teachers. They're coming up with these ideas that are just causing more and more work. And it is so hard. So at this point, a question to all three of you, how committed do you feel to sticking with your profession, with your careers? Um, I'm very committed. Um, I, I don't want to leave education on a sour note. You know, like, I feel like for the most part that mm -hmm. it'll get better hopefully this year has taught these legislators and um, upper management of these school districts that there are different ways that we can get these students where they need to be without stressing their teachers out. Um, I'm hoping they look at the data and see that massive amounts of people are leaving. Um, and I hope they really look at that and really ask these teachers and really pay attention to their answers about why they're leaving. You know, what can we do to fix this? Because if they don't, I mean, there's just going to be hemorrhaging really good teachers for the foreseeable future. Michael? Yeah, I think teachers are naturally eternal optimists. Um, they have to be. They have to believe that every student can achieve. Uh, they have to believe that they can they can move that mountain. So um, I mean, I'll be back next year because I, I'm a glutton for punishment, but <laughs> I truly think uh, there are a lot of my colleagues that are not going to be returning. And we need teachers. We need teachers, please. People who are listening to this right now, understand how can you help support your local schools? You need to, because again, these children are our future. We need them educated. Help us educate them, please. A call to arms, a call to action, please. Well, I am grateful to all three of you for all that you do. 
and for sticking with it. Thank you so much. That was Susan Polkhofsis of Millbridge, Maine, Michael Reinholdt of Davenport, Iowa, and Tiki Boye Logan of Rowlett, Texas. I appreciate all three of you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It's Garo Hagopian. Straight ahead at 6.30, Marketplace. WBUR's newest T-shirt is our thanks when you give $7 a month, normally 10 See the yellow crewneck shirt and get yours at WBUR.org. In the forecast, some rain and thunder tonight, low 65 degrees. Tomorrow, about an even chance of thunderstorms, hot, highs near 90. Right now, 72 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. Building restoration services. Hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com and Charles River Apparel, a third-generation, family-run business committed to creating timeless apparel you can count on. Learn more at CharlesRiverApparel.com.